When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hey everybody, Jared Halverson here. Glad to have you back on Unshaken to study some more scripture. Today we're covering six through nine of the Doctrine and Covenants. Amazing revelations. Now last week when we covered three through five, I know there was a lot of material. So many principles to discuss in those three revelations to the point that I felt like I needed to split them out and have a video for each one. Now, if you only got through the first or maybe dabbled into the second, honestly, I think the third was the most important of the three. Section five of the Doctrine and Covenants is key as it helps us understand through Martin Harris, how do we gain a testimony of truth? For many of us, it's the first time we're seeking a testimony. We're investigators to the church, or we're young in the faith, and we're trying to come to know for ourselves that it's true. For many others of you, or those that we love, it's a, it's a return to the faith that we're seeking, or that we're hoping for them. And it's this testimony that we once had, but we've lost somehow along the way. And how do I regain what I once knew? Especially if our faith has been attacked along the way, and that's what we've been struggling with. If our faith has been deconstructed, then how do I reconstruct it? And so many of the principles of reconstruction are the same principles of construction. And section 5 is such an amazing place to study them. Again, if you didn't get a chance to get through everything last week, I would highly recommend that you go back and spend some serious time with section 5. As Martin Harris is trying to come to grips with the difference between perfect knowledge and real faith, between empirical proof and spiritual confirmation, in many ways, simply between the head and the heart. That is one of the key contraries that we need to prove today. Again, that great quote from Joseph Smith, I repeat it often because it's, it has such explanatory power in my opinion. By proving contraries, truth is made manifest. Contraries are those paradoxes where, where both opposites happen to be true. Things like justice and mercy, Things like faith and works, things like exclusivity and inclusivity, or community and individuality. Anytime you see opposite positives, we're not talking good versus evil, we're talking good A versus good B, but how do you get both of them to coincide? There's so many of these amazing contraries. And the one that we need to learn to prove early on in the Doctrine and Covenants is the contrary of head and heart. It'll be spelled out most clearly in section 8, which we'll get to shortly. But what we're already seeing as we transition from section 5 to section 6, as we move from Martin Harris to Oliver Cowdery, is you start to see these two extremes embodied by these two of the three witnesses. David Whitmer had his own issues and his own lessons to teach us. But between Martin and Oliver, it's as if Martin is relying too much upon the head and Oliver is relying too much upon the heart when both are required. Pay particular attention to this wrestle between head and heart that is so beautifully embodied in Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery. And especially when it comes to the wrestle of faith, you've got to apply both body parts. We can't be the, the scarecrow with no brain, nor the tin man with no heart. We have to combine the two. 
Now because this concept of revelation is so powerfully taught in section 6 and 8 and 9, they get interrupted in the middle with section 7. And so rather than, than interrupt the flow, I want to pull out section 7 and cover that first. That way when we're done with that, we can, we can keep laser focused on the topic at hand in 6, 8, and 9. So if you'll jump ahead to section 7, Oliver Cowdery is still here. It's still a revelation to him and to Joseph. But it's an interesting one because it doesn't have anything to do with them and what they're going through. It has to do with John the Beloved. And a question that was on Joseph and Oliver's mind, in fact, that's probably why it's so important to get it here in the middle of Revelation. They've got a question they're asking. So many revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants came as answers to questions. So please ask. Well, they were asking about John the Beloved. Remember how the book of John ends? Kind of cryptically, as Jesus is suggesting to Peter, well, what's it to you if I let John live until I come? And then it kind of leaves it at that. And that's why the book of John ends with that, you know, there was, thus went this saying abroad that John was allowed to live. But it's like, well, the saying went abroad, but, but is that true or was it just rumor? And so Joseph and Oliver are wondering about this and they ask and they get an answer. This is revelation at work at its finest. The way it came is fascinating. They approach the Lord by means of the Urim and Thummim and ask for some kind of a revelation, helping them understand what happened to John. And Joseph sees in vision a parchment written by John with a record of what took place. This is so fascinating to me that God could have spoken directly to Joseph and, and have him speak and have it written down. That's the way section 3 came and section 4 came. But instead, to show him in vision text that wasn't physically present, to be able to see in this vision, this is something that has been written down and then to reveal what was on the parchment to be able to record it in what we now have in Scripture. Really interesting. But how does the revelation begin? What, was, what did John write on this parchment? And the Lord said unto me, John, my beloved, what desirest thou? For if you shall ask what you will, it shall be granted unto you. It's beautiful that the Lord refers to John there as my beloved. I mean, we call him John the beloved, but that is not a phrase that you find in the actual Gospels. The reason we call him that is because John, in his gospel, perhaps as a way of keeping himself out of the spotlight, refers to himself in the third person. He doesn't say, and I, John, followed Peter to the tomb. No, he says, and Peter went along with the disciple whom Jesus loved. Or instead of saying, Jesus' mother, Mary, and I were at the base of the cross. No, he said, and Jesus spoke to, this, to his mother, saying, woman, behold thy son, pointing to the disciple whom Jesus loved. I actually love that about John. Who am I? John? Who cares about my name? Who cares about who I am? I am someone that Jesus loved. What a powerful way of self-identifying. We live in a day when our identity is everything. To the point that we talk about all of our various identities and there are identity politics and so on. But I love the fact that John is self-identifying, not based on anything about himself personally, not about his interests or his proclivities, not about anything personality-wise. Who am I? Simply someone whom Jesus loves. That's how I identify myself. A child of God, a disciple of Christ, someone whom the Savior loves. Reminds me of Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus is sick and dying. And they send a messenger to run to Jesus and they don't say, Lazarus is sick. They simply say, him whom thou lovest is sick. Now the irony there is that that doesn't reduce the numbers at all. 
It's like Jesus could say, oh, could, could you narrow it down a little bit? The, the, him whom thou lovest describes everyone. But that's beside the point. As far as Mary and Martha were concerned, as far as Lazarus was concerned, how do I identify myself? I'm someone that Jesus loves. That is such a more powerful claim to fame than any accomplishment or award. When I was at Vanderbilt, I was TAing a class. I think we were talking about early American Puritanism, and I was trying to help them see how the people of the time saw themselves in relation to the world, that we are God's covenant people. And I wanted to help these students contrast that self-identification with how we view religion as kind of a, a marginal part of who we happen to be. And so I asked these students, just personally on a piece of paper, write down a bunch of adjectives that describe yourself. It can include all of the identities that typically are focused upon in our day. Race, gender, sexual orientation, uh, political leanings, geography, where you're from, and so on. Put them all down. And they listed a bunch of them. And then I said this. Here's the next part of the exercise. I want you to take all of those adjectives and put them into a single sentence that begins with I am a. And then list them. Now, that seems really easy, but what I want you to do that's going to require some brain power is decide which one of those adjectives you're going to place last and turn into a noun. You see, all of them begin as adjectives, but one of them, if you're going to say, I am a, it's got to end with a noun. And the one you choose, pay attention to, because that lets you know how you truly self-identify. These other things are simply adjectives that modify the noun of what I really choose to be. So, for example, in my case, if I describe myself as a white American heterosexual male, oh, then male, my, my masculinity, my gender seems to be the real core identity. Or am I a male heterosexual white American? Is my nationality what means most to me? Is it patriotism? Am I a white male American heterosexual? So my sexuality comes first. Am I a, a heterosexual male American white? Is race what's most important to me? You see what I'm getting at? It was really an interesting eye-opener for these students as they wrestled with, yeah, I'm all of these things, but at the end of the sentence or the end of the day, who am I? To me, it is so beautifully moving that if you were to ask John to write out his sentence and string together his adjectives all in preparation to define himself by his noun, he would conclude the sentence with, I'm someone that Jesus loves. Christ came to die for me. I am his. He is mine. It's like what Mormon says in 3rd Nephi, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I have been called of him to declare his word to his people. See all the hises there? My, who I am is who he is. I only matter as I relate to him. I'm somebody that Jesus loves. Well, this beloved John, when the Lord asks him, what desirest thou? That's a word that we're going to see frequently through all of these chapters for today. Keep an eye out, not just for the overarching theme of Revelation, but look for words like desire, words like gift, words like work, in fact, those ones come together beautifully because so often our desires determine what God will give us as gifts. And so often those gifts are meant to qualify us for the work 
of the Lord. That's exactly the case in John's situation. But ask what you will. It will be granted unto you. Now, to get a blank check from the Lord, you must have gained your trust. When my son was going on a trip and, I, and we weren't sure how much money he would need and I gave him a credit card, that was a little nerve-wracking. But for the Lord to say, John, ask what you will. It'll be granted you. The closest I can think of is uh, Helaman 10, when Nephi, son of Helaman, is given the sealing power. Talk about a divine blank check, right? What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You say it, it's going to be done. But what does the Lord say to Nephi there? Because I know you won't ask for anything that's against my will. John had proven himself trustworthy of a similar gift. Again, that word we'll see often. I'm going to give you a gift because I know that you know what to do with it. We've got to keep that in mind as we are asking the Lord for gifts. And what does John ask for? Verse 2, I said unto him, Lord, give unto me power over death, that I may live and bring souls unto thee. Now notice his response there. He starts by saying, Lord, as if to clarify, I want you to know that I know who's really in charge here. It's not just a matter of, oh, sweet, I can do whatever I want. I can get anything I ask for. No, it's still, Lord, you're still in charge. And so I'm not going to ask for anything against thy will. Please don't give this to me if it is not what thou wouldst have me receive. But if it is thy will, Lord, then please give me power over death. But he doesn't stop there. And it's important that he doesn't. If you go back to 1 Kings, when Solomon becomes king, and he's overwhelmed by this responsibility, and the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Solomon, ask what you will. I'll give it to you. Another blank check. And for Solomon, he pleads, I need wisdom, because I cannot judge these people. At least I can't do justice by them, unless I have the wisdom that can only come from God. The Lord praises Solomon for that request. And actually says, it's a good thing you asked for that instead of some of these other things. You can almost picture the genie in the lamp saying, oh, here we go again. Everybody always asks for riches and long life and power over their enemies and blah, blah, blah. Just go ask Prince Ali, right? But in terms of Solomon, he specifically says, I bless you because you didn't ask for long life. Well, uh-oh, John did. But go back to Solomon's account, and what does the Lord specifically say? Thou hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. So you catch the repeated phrase? What the Lord was worried about was, are you asking for these things for yourself? If it's long life for you, it's not a worthy petition. If it's wealth or power or prestige, whatever, for thyself, then I'm not giving that to you. That's just giving in to the pride cycle. But if what you're asking for is for others, in fact, even if it's for thyself, but that's not the purpose, that's just kind of means to an end. I need wisdom. The wisdom I'm asking for is for myself, but technically it isn't. It's for the people that I'm trying to do justice by. You see the selflessness in Solomon's request and the same selflessness here in John's. Please give me power over death, but only so that I may live and bring souls unto thee. I remember at the end of my mission, I had come to love that work so much 
that I wanted to keep giving it to God. I still had a little heart, might, mind, and strength left. Can I keep giving it here in Puerto Rico? And I asked my mission president, can I extend a month? And he said, oh, you can extend six months. And I'm like, really? I can? And he laughed. He said, no, you got to go home. I'm like, ah, really? I just want to live here in Puerto Rico and bring souls unto thee. I don't want to stop this work. Well, as you can tell, I still haven't stopped that work. I've just been transferred multiple times ever since. But John, I don't want to be transferred from this life to the next. Can I keep doing it here? And the Lord responds in verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Because thou desirest this, thou shalt tarry until I come in my glory. And what will you be doing in the meantime? Thou shalt prophesy before nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. They'll all need the message that you have. Now, I'm not going to get into specifics of that mission to prophesy before nations, because I don't know specifics. I would love to be a fly on the wall the day that John's mission finally does come to an end and he gets to report to the High Council and share some missionary. Let's, let's all be there for John's missionary homecoming address, shall we? But I do want to talk about that word, tarry. You'll get to tarry until I come in my glory. When I hear that word, I think of 3 Nephi 17. As Jesus is concluding that day of preaching among the Nephites, and he's about to leave, and the people look upon him in tears as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer. Please don't leave us, Jesus. And he stays. He tarries with them. Or like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when they finally get to their destination, but it looks like Jesus is going to continue onward. Abide with me. Tis eventide. Jesus, will you please stay with me? Well, in some ways, John is, knows Jesus is leaving. He's not going to return until his second coming. So this is a very different kind of tarrying. It's not a matter of letting me tarry with you or you tarry with me. This is the opposite. Let me tarry away from thee. Why? Because I know how much I want to be with you. And others who may not yet know that need to be awakened to that realization too. So as much as I want to tarry with you, I am willing and in fact desirous to tarry away from you so that I can point people in your direction and help them come home. Talk about selflessness in this gift. It would be so much easier, such a quicker reward, if I could just come and be with you quickly. Instead, he chooses to tarry. In fact, I was so intrigued by that word, I went on a search through the scriptures to find in other places where it was mentioned. And I was fascinated by many in the Book of Mormon. For example, when some of the men of King Noah choose not to abandon their wives and children to escape and every man for himself kind of a thing. It's what Noah did. It's what Amulon and his the wicked priests did. But many of those men chose to tarry with their wives and children. I will stay back in hopes of being able to protect and preserve them. Of course, the irony there is their act of tarrying was what saved them. They didn't save their wives and daughters. Their wives and daughters ended up saving them. Amazing turnabout. Or how about Alma and Amulek, where Alma chooses to tarry with Amulek many days before they go out and preach together. If it was me, I'd be chomping at the bit. I didn't come for this Amulek guy. I, I came for the people of Ammonihah. And yet Amulek is going to be one of the most important and pivotal converts within Ammonihah. 
Do we sometimes tarry to help a companion when we really feel called to help everybody else? Oh, th th this pause in your mission is no pause at all. Or how about when King Lamoni tarried back with Ammon during his own conversion, the conversion of his people, rather than head off to this feast that his father was throwing for all of his sons. Beautiful that Lamoni was willing to miss his own party and tarry where he was most needed to come to know God himself and to help others come to know him also. You see that word tarry can mean so much more than just to stay or to wait. It, it can also have a sense of staying behind, giving up something in order to stay behind on behalf of other people. But also a sense of staying behind with anticipation of whatever is to come. There's an expectation in that staying behind. I'm missing out for good reason, but I'm not missing out forever. More importantly, those that I'm tarrying behind to be with won't have to miss out on these blessings either. So whatever blessings you feel you might be missing out on because you are tarrying, sometimes through no choice of your own, in a certain phase of life or in a certain place or position, look around and see who you can help in whatever circumstance you find yourself living in. And however long you happen to live there, live and bring souls unto Christ. Now verse 4 then shifts the scene back to what we see in John chapter 21. He says, For this cause the Lord said unto Peter, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? For he desired, there's that word again, he desired of me that he might bring souls unto me. But thou desirest that thou mightest speedily come unto me in my kingdom. You both had desires. They happen to be different desires, but I honor both of them. And they're so true to the character and personalities of these two great men. Remember, back to John 21, that scene when it's all happening. The risen Lord is there on the shores of Galilee. Peter and the others are out on the boat fishing. And there's this deja vu moment where, hey, have you caught anything? No. Well, why don't you try over there? Wait a minute. This is ringing some bells. And as they fill the boat with fish and Peter realizes who's on the shore, he dives in. Can't wait for the sails. He can't wait for the oars. I just want to be with Jesus. And he leaves everything behind and Michael Phelps like dives in the water and swims for shore. Meanwhile, what's John doing? He's staying in the boat. He's tarrying behind. Because I don't think the Lord helped us catch all these fish for nothing. I will stay back with them. Peter, you go on ahead and be with Jesus. Now, I want to pause the Doctrine and Covenants 7 account just enough to point out an important detail in the John 21 account. You see, because we're human beings, we naturally want to compare. And we want to say, yeah, John, oh, Peter, and, and compare the two. And to a degree, I guess that's okay. After all, when you meet this, a similar story take place in the Book of Mormon, this is 3 Nephi 28, when you meet the 12 Nephite disciples, and we talk about the three Nephites, and we seem to forget about the nine. Remember the nine disciples, the Lord's putting them in a similar situation. What desirest thou? What you ask, I'll give to you. And the nine come forward and say, we, we don't want to tarry at all. We want to be with you. As soon as our work is done, can we come speedily to thee, to thy kingdom? And the Lord says, yes. And it seemed like such a righteous desire to be with Jesus that the three other Nephite disciples are feeling a little sheepish about what they wanted to ask to the point that they don't have the courage to ask for it at all. And the Lord says, ah, yes, I perceive in you 
a desire that's different than your peers. Just like John's was different from Peter's. But yours is a righteous desire. So don't hesitate to ask for it. Just because you want a different kind of mission than someone else's. And in that circumstance, he does even say to those three. Again, 3 Nephi 28 is a great place to study this idea more in depth. The video we did for that last year goes, digs into it far deeper than we will here. But Jesus does compare. And that was a righteous desire, but yours is even better because you want to stay and bring souls unto me. There's a little bit of comparison here in Doctrine and Covenants 7 verse 5 as well. But I love what Jesus does to Peter directly in John chapter 21. You see, the context of that story is right on the heels of Simon. Remember, he doesn't call him Peter there. It's not, you're the rock, it's Simon. You weren't very rock-like when you denied me three times. So let me ask you three times to give you, to, to give you another chance to prove yourself. Simon, lovest thou me more than these? Well, yea, Lord, I love thee. Simon, lovest thou me more than these? Each time, Simon, each time, of course you know I love you. In each time, then feed my sheep. Fish for men, not fish. Follow me. And it's with that realization that Peter fully commits, I will follow you. And then Jesus, almost testing that determination, says, okay, you will follow me, but will you follow me all the way? Because when you were young, this is kind of cryptic the way he says this in John 21. When you were young, you girded yourself. You could, you could dress yourself however you wanted. You could go wherever you wanted. But when you're old, things will be different. Someone else will gird you. Someone else will take you to places you would never have chosen to go. And then this cryptic explanation. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. In other words, what are you going to be girded with? A cross of crucifixion. Where will you be taken? To the grave. And then with that more clearly in mind, Jesus looks through the soul of Peter and says, Follow me. And it's with that perhaps dawning realization that Peter kind of looks around. Misery loves company, right? And he and finds John and says, well, what about him? What's going to happen to him? If I'm going to be girded with the cross and taken to the grave, what about John? And that's when Jesus says, don't compare yourself. What's it to you if I say to him, tarry till I come again? Follow me. You see, Peter, and to all of us, there are different ways of following Jesus. Some are called upon, Peter-like, to follow him to the grave. Joseph would. Others are called to follow Jesus, John-like, through all of their long lives. And whenever you start comparing your mission to someone else's, or your contribution to someone else's, I hope that you hear the Lord whispering to you what he said to Peter. What's that to thee? Don't worry about what others are doing. You just follow me. Give me what you've got. Your widow's might, your measure of meal, your handful of oil, your loaves and your fishes. Just follow. Someone once asked Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve, not entirely sincerely, a little mockingly, said, Would you give your life for Jesus? And his classic response, That's what I thought I was doing. Some are called upon to give God a moment of martyrdom. Others are called upon to offer to Him a lifetime of love.
whichever you're asked to give. Give it willingly, with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. Now, in John's case, called upon to tarry, since that's what he desired, it was granted him. In fact, one of the most fascinating reads you could ever have is Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's what they call a martyrology, a record of the people who have given their lives for their religious belief. Sounds a little morbid by modern standards, but back in the day, it was popular reading. If you owned one book, it was the Bible. If you owned two, it was Pilgrim's Progress. And if you owned three, the third was Fox's Book of Martyrs. People loved it. Joseph Smith himself read it and actually prayed to God to ask about the fate of those martyrs. It's as if he knew he would someday join them. But in that book, it describes, so much of it is throughout early Christian history and up through the Protestant Reformation and so on. But it starts with the martyrs of the apostolic age, namely the apostles themselves. And in pretty graphic terms, it describes the, the way they met their fate, including Peter with his upside-down crucifixion. Now, in John's case, it's fascinating, the brief paragraph that describes his martyrdom, or more accurately, its absence. It reads, The beloved disciple was brother to James the Great. From Ephesus he was ordered to be sent to Rome, where it is affirmed he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. He escaped by miracle, without injury. Domitian afterwards banished him to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. You see, banishment seems like a better option when, when physical punishment doesn't seem to do anything. The passage from Fox's Book of Martyrs ends with this. He was the only apostle who escaped a violent death. And then he left it at that. Well, how was that possible? Only through the gift that God gave him, based upon the desire of his heart. If you go back to section 7, verse 5, the Lord says to Peter, This was a good desire. Yours was good. But here's the difference. My beloved has desired that he might do more, or a greater work, yet among men, than what he has before done. John isn't trying to make up for lost time. He gave his mortal mission all that he had. But he wanted to go beyond it. Can I do more? Can I do a greater work? Verse 6, Yea, he has undertaken a greater work. A marvelous work is about to come forth. You can all be engaged in that. John's been engaged in it ever since his first mission. I'm amazed at those, those senior couples in the church that just go on missions, then come home and regroup and, and get to know a few more grandkids and then head off again somewhere else. It's incredible to watch people just roll up their sleeves and give it all they've got. The marvelous work of God deserves it. The Lord says, I will make him as flaming fire and as a ministering angel. He shall minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation who dwell on the earth. Sounds like a successful mission. Far more successful than all the persecution and opposition he faced in life. A ministering angel. That they are called to minister. Not to administer. That, that's stuff that mere mortals can handle. But to minister to people. I also love that he's described as a flaming fire. Fire cleanses. It purifies. And what exactly is it? It's hard to tell, to be honest. It's certainly not a solid or a liquid. Is it a gas? Some say, well, is it plasma? I mean, anciently, fire was even described as a different element. We got earth and wind and water and fire. 
it's its own thing. It doesn't seem to fit any other normal categories. Well, how is this taking place? How is John uh, tarrying? How is he escaping death? I don't know. As Mormon is grappling with this in 3 Nephi 28, he's asking the Lord, how is this possible? And the Lord reaffirms to him, yes, there has to be some kind of physical change or he would succumb to death. He's no mere solid or liquid or gas. He's something different now. He is a flaming fire sent to cleanse the earth and prepare it for the second coming, or at least within his role, to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation. Now back to you, Peter. Again, you each have different missions to perform. Verse 7, I will make thee, Peter, to minister for him and for thy brother James. That's that original first presidency. And Peter would hold the primacy. Unto you three, collectively, I will give this power and the keys of this ministry until I come. That includes that sealing power that Jesus had said to Peter earlier. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you seal on earth or loose on earth will be sealed or loosed in heaven. I trust you. I know you will not ask amiss. Verse 8, Verily I say unto you, Ye shall both have according to your desires, for ye both joy in that which ye have desired. That speaks volumes about the Savior wanting to give us whatever will bring us the greatest joy. Now, he's trying to change our heart mightily, which has an effect upon our taste buds as well. And what we desire, to educate our desires is a beautiful phrase, to teach us what we should want so that the righteous desires of our heart really are desirous to us. I get that sense when, when Nephi is, is seen in vision, the tree of life, and he finally gets it. It kind of clicks for him. He says, oh, that's the fruit that is most desirable above all things. That's what we're supposed to want. And then the angel has to ch chime in and say, well, yes, it is and the most joyous to the soul. In other words, Nephi, it's not just what you're supposed to want. It's what you really do down deep when taste buds are no longer scorched with sin, when temptation is no longer sugar-coated, when you can reboot the system and really understand what truly tastes delicious. That's the greatest joy there is. It's not just what you're supposed to want. Peter, John, you both find joy in these righteous desires. Yes, they're different, but they are both means of following me. So follow me and you will find joy in what you desired. Now, get up from the sand, dust yourself off, and leave the shores of Galilee to come back to Harmony, Pennsylvania. Joseph and Oliver are there seeing this parchment in vision, but they're in the midst of working on other ancient records themselves, namely the golden plates. Oliver had heard some stories when he was lodging with the Smith family as, as kind of an itinerant schoolmaster. And moved upon by the Spirit, he wanted to know things for himself, and so he left Palmyra, went down to Harmony to find Joseph. Remember last week when Joseph was told, to pause the work on the translation for a season. God will more than make up for it. He will provide means whereby you can accomplish that. Well, that means was Oliver Cowdery. He comes, he meets Joseph Smith, and in section 6, 
we see the first revelation that Joseph receives for him. Section 8 and 9 will be addressed to Oliver as well. And it calls him to a work, not unlike the work that John the Beloved wanted to engage in. A great work. A marvelous work. That's how the Lord begins this revelation in section 6, verse 1. Now, I'm actually going to skip the first nine verses, and there's a reason. They're the same nine verses that begin section 11, a revelation from Joseph to his brother Hiram. In fact, the first six verses of section 6 and section 11 are also the same beginning verses of section 12, revelation to Joseph Knight Sr., and section 14, revelation to David Whitmer. And so I'm actually going to save those beginning verses for those later revelations. I can talk about them there, and we can talk about this idea of repetitive revelation in general. What happens if God speaks to you in similar language to what he said to other people? We'll tackle all of that uh, in a couple of weeks. So to start with what is unique to Oliver Cowdery, let's go to verse 10. The Lord says to him, Behold, thou hast a gift. I told you the gifts would come up frequently in this material. Here it is. Thou hast a gift, and blessed art thou because of thy gift. But keep this in mind. Remember, it is sacred, and cometh from above. That is so important with every gift. The moment we start thinking it's inherent in us, instead of a gift that has been given us from outside, then we start feeling justified in using it on ourselves. I mean, it's who I am, after all. No. This is a gift. I used to really struggle in accepting compliments when somebody would say something nice about a lesson I taught, for example. I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not that good, whatever. But I remember at one point when somebody says, wow, you're a really gifted teacher. And instead of just pushing back and stiff-arming that kind word, it hit me the way they said it. You're gifted. And I realized the fact that he sees it as a gift allows me to recognize and confirm to him that it was given, that it wasn't inherent in me, that this isn't something that I have, it's something that the Lord had, and, and in his mercy and his condescension, was willing to share his gifts with us. Whatever your gifts might be, remember the source was outside you. It's like what Mormon taught last year, if it's good, it comes from God. So we don't take the credit. If it's good, it's a gift. If it's a gift, it's from Him. So remember, it's sacred. It comes from above. And as a result, we should recognize that it comes with certain strings attached. Namely, strings that bind us to every other person that can benefit from the use of that gift. Solomon wasn't asking for things for himself. John wasn't asking for long life for himself. Our gifts are not meant for us alone. We'll see this taught beautifully in section 46, when the Lord digs into that concept of spiritual gifts and what they're for. And if you're seeking more of them, good, you should. But always keep in mind why they're given in the first place. And that's for everyone else. Now, in this case, for Oliver, the, the initial gift that the Lord is describing is the gift of revelation. It's a gift that each of us need to develop. Think about how often President Nelson has emphasized our need to learn the language of revelation. In verse 11, the Lord says to Oliver, If thou wilt inquire, so much of this starts with our asking, thou shalt know mysteries, which are great and marvelous, 
It's not just the work that's great and marvelous. God's mysteries are too. Therefore, thou shalt exercise thy gift. Exercise is meant to build muscles, not just to show off the muscles we already have. Exercise thy gift. Expand upon it. Make yourself more strong in this area. Why? That thou mayest find out mysteries. And what's the purpose of that? That thou mayest bring many to the knowledge of the truth. Yea, convince them of the error of their ways. See what the Lord is after? If you'll use your gifts, you will be able to bring others to the knowledge of the truth. That's faith. You'll convince them of the error of their ways. That's repentance. I'm trying to, I mean, more used would I be, right? I'm trying to help you become an instrument in my hands so that you can cry faith and repentance and prepare people to make covenants with the Lord. Bring the Spirit into their lives. Help them endure to the end. Prepare the world for the second coming. You've got work to do, Oliver. It's great and it's marvelous. And you need to prepare yourself. I've already planted within you the gift to be able to access all that you need. The gift is revelation. Exercise the gift. Get better at learning from me. I actually love the order that he puts those in also. First, as you exercise this gift, you've got to find out the mysteries yourself. And mystery doesn't have to be some deep doctrine that nobody knows. Mysteries have been defined as simply truths that you cannot know except from God. They have to come by way of revelation. A testimony is a mystery. I remember years ago teaching a religion class at BYU, and one of the students was just so excited about what he was learning. He's like, I, I just want to dig deep. Give me some of the mysteries. And I just laughed, and I said, you want to study a mystery? Then go study charity. I've still never met anybody that's fully developed that one. Go study faith. Really understand what the Lord is trying to convey there. It's not about searching for esoteric material and deep doctrine. It's about deepening the effect within us of the doctrine that only God can teach. Go develop faith and charity. Leave Gnosticism to the Gnostics. But if that's the first step, find out these mysteries for yourself. The second step is teach that truth to others. And the third step is to convince them of the error of their ways. I think sometimes we get that order reversed and go around first trying to convince others of the error of their ways. We get so much glee in finding the motes in other people's eyes that we just want to pull them all out and show them that they're wrong and need to be better. Now that can only come after they have been brought to a knowledge of the truth. We don't teach commandments except in the context of the plan. The sons of Mosiah got that right when they were teaching Lamanites. Oh, plenty of errors to show. No. Let's just teach them truth. Let's help them understand the plan. And then we can teach them the commandments. It's that context that makes the commandments meaningful at all. It's what motivates us to want to live them. And the only way we're going to help them come to a knowledge of that truth is by coming to a knowledge of that for ourselves first. Believe me, we each have at least a portion of that gift. Ultimately, we want the gift of the Holy Ghost, which will reveal all mysteries to us. But on the way, we have the gift of conscience. We have the gift of the light of Christ. We have access to the gift of revelation, if we will exercise it. Build that muscle, and then come to know the mysteries, teach them to others, and help them repent. Now, verse 12, make not thy gift known unto any, save it be those who are of thy faith. Trifle not with sacred things. 
It's amazing how careful the Lord is trying to be with the gifts that he gives us. He doesn't just toss around the sealing power, for example. We have to gain his trust. So back in 10, remember it's sacred. Remember the source. It comes from above. 12, don't go around flaunting your gifts, showing off and telling everybody. Remember, Joseph himself had to learn what his gifts were for. The gold plates weren't for for monetization or personal aggrandizement. They were to bless the world around him. That even his, his role as village seer was not something to go find buried treasure. It was to unearth the word of God. Oliver has similar gifts and needs similar warnings. Even when it comes to spiritual gifts that our patriarchal blessing makes known to us, for example. We don't go around advertising Oh, I have the gift of healing, so let me give all the priesthood blessings. Or I have the gift of teaching, so let me be the gospel doctrine teacher in perpetuity. Or I have the gift of administration, so I should be in charge of this ward. No. If you have those gifts and simply exercise them, people will see, but they'll see the Lord's hand behind them. And they will glorify your Father in heaven, even when it's your good works that they are seeing. These sacred things are not to be trifled with. Take them seriously. They're given for a wise purpose. Verse 13, if thou wilt do good, again, that's what they're for. Yea, and hold out faithful to the end, something you'll need to work on, Oliver. Thou shalt be saved in the kingdom of God, which is the greatest of all the gifts of God. For there is no gift greater than the gift of salvation. That's the ultimate gift I want to give all of my children. I just give you all these smaller preliminary gifts along the way. And they're meant to bring you home, bringing as many of your brothers and sisters with you as you can. So use those gifts so that I can give you the greatest gift. And please remember that they're gifts all along the way. Things I give, not things you earn. Salvation is not described as the greatest of paychecks, but rather the greatest of gifts. We don't earn it. We don't pay God back for it. Frankly, we don't deserve it. Now, beyond those gifts that will steer Oliver through his future, the gift of revelation, these gifts of finding out mysteries, these, these, the gift of salvation that's the ultimate reward. Verse 14, here's some gifts from your past. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Blessed art thou for what thou hast done, for thou hast inquired of me. That's what he was telling him to keep on doing. You've had experience here. Thou hast inquired of me, and behold, as often as thou hast inquired, thou hast received instruction of my spirit. If it had not been so, thou wouldst not have come to the place where thou art at this time. It's almost like the Lord is, is reassuring Oliver of his use of gifts past in order to encourage him to continue seeking and exercising gifts future. You're good at this, Oliver. It's what got you here. Reminds me of when I was dating my wife. And we were getting more and more serious and kind of starting to think about marriage. Well, at least I was. And I've been praying and fasting and, and feeling some confirmation that it was right that I pursue this relationship. Well, I was much further ahead on that than she was. I mean, go figure. Uh, I, I knew she was right. She wasn't so sure about me. But I remember when we started talking about marriage, my students have sometimes asked, so when did you propose? And I always laugh and say, from March until October. Seriously, it was seven months before my wife finally agreed to marry me. It's like I told the guys in my class, just be persistent. Some of us are acquired tastes. 
Remember, I had friends at the time that would be like, ah, what's taking her so long? What, is she waiting for an angel to come or something? And I remember d defending her to my friends and saying to them, if I doubted her ability to receive revelation, I wouldn't be pursuing this relationship to begin with. I have total trust that she will gain an answer from God. Her gifts in gaining revelation have got her to this far in life, and they'll get her to this next goal as well, whenever it comes. You sense that with God speaking to Oliver? You're better at this than you realize. Now in verse 15 he continues, Behold, thou knowest that thou hast inquired of me, and I did enlighten thy mind. And now I tell thee these things, that thou mayest know that thou hast been enlightened by the Spirit of Truth. You get a sense of what Joseph said earlier in Joseph Smith history? I knew it, and I knew that God knew it. Well, here the Lord is calling Oliver out. You know you inquired of me. More importantly, I know you know. I'm confirming that to you. But more than just reminding you that you've asked and that you've received, I want to clarify that that receipt, what you gained, was revelation. It came by the Spirit of Truth. That wasn't just some idea that popped in your head. That wasn't you talking. That was me talking. I think that's one of the, well, honestly, it's one of the questions I get all the time from young people. How do you know if it's you versus God? And I love that the Lord is clarifying that here for Oliver. You have been enlightened by the Spirit of Truth. I remember when I was a missionary, 25 years ago, and in the old missionary guide, before I preached my gospel, they, would, they, had, they had this section on help others feel and recognize the Holy Ghost. And I remember the twofold nature of that training really feeling important to me. That our job wasn't just to help people feel the Spirit, it was to help them recognize it as well. Otherwise, they could be feeling things, they could be receiving revelation, they could be getting answers to their prayers, but still not recognizing the fact that that's what it was. And they're still waiting for something bigger or grander or more obvious. They are waiting for the angel to come when they'd already felt the still small voice. I remember I had a mission companion, Elder Josephat, amazing convert to the church from the Philippines. And he said, as a youth in the Philippines, he saw two American missionaries walking by in his village. And he felt something overwhelming to the point that I mean, he didn't talk to them. He didn't know who they were, didn't know anything about them, but he just saw them and felt something just wash over his soul that brought him to tears. He couldn't stop thinking about it. The next day he went searching through his village until he found them. This would be an interesting uh, opening conversation. He's like, who are you and why are you making me cry? <laughs> why do I feel what I feel? just when in your presence. You see, the, he'd already felt the Spirit. He just didn't recognize what it was. And the missionaries were able to help him recognize and act on it. And he joined the church and went on a mission and became my companion. Amazing, amazing guy. Or another companion of mine. That was Elder jo Josephette. This is Elder LeSueur. Elder LeSueur told me that when he was in the MTC, he was really struggling with, do I really have a testimony? Do, do I know? It was almost like he was having his, his Doctrine and Covenants 5 experience. Well, in reality, it was more of a Doctrine and Covenant 6 experience. Because as Elder LeSueur told me, as he was there in the MTC learning how to help others feel and recognize the Holy Ghost, it was helping him recognize the Holy Ghost himself. And he said, once I understood, wait, that's what it is? That enlightening of the mind, that peace in the heart, the, that's the Holy Ghost? 
And then he said, I almost did like a, a double take of my life, rewound the tape and watched it all and realized, I felt that then and there and doing this and doing that. I, I have felt the Holy Ghost so many times throughout my life, confirming truth. I just didn't recognize that that's what was happening. I do have a testimony. It's stronger than I realize, and I am ready to head to Puerto Rico and share it with everyone that I meet. He did, and did an incredible job of it. In this verse, Oliver, you know what you did, but do you know what I did? You inquired, I enlightened, that was me, not you. Several of my children struggle with some mental health challenges, anxiety and depression and so on. And I remember having a conversation with one of my children that was really struggling with getting these, these negative voices out of their head, always dragging them down and telling them they were worthless when every mere mortal around them knows just how incredible this person is. And I remember we were just talking about just the voice in our head. I didn't put two and two together and connect it to the principle of revelation, but I think this idea was important for us to understand. Because all these negative voices were in their head and they were just feeling, that's the real me. It's me talking. I know what I'm like. And all these, the idea of affirmations or me talking back to it. No, I really am that bad or that worthless or that inadequate. And I just kept trying to reassure this child, you're not. And that's not you. And I remember as they were struggling with this, and I was, and we were wrestling together trying to make sense of this. We talked about the voice in the head as like a DJ. And there's always something on, something that it's playing, and sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's negative. And based on how some people are wired, it's just a negative voice all the time. But the DJ has learned to mimic you perfectly. That's why it sounds like your voice in your head. It's just me talking. That, that's my self-perception. But when it's inaccurate, when you've bought into what other people have said to you, what society has said is supposed to be the ideal, or what friends have said in negative ways, how do you differentiate between those outside negative voices, the DJ in your head, and the real you? And I remember this light bulb came on as I said to this child, the real you is not the person speaking it's the person listening. Now that's still hard to wrap our minds around, but to calm the outside influences, to silence the external voices that now have become internalized, and just be, to feel, to recognize who you really are, and to listen, to recognize that you're the person hearing, well, here the Lord is helping Oliver with that. The real you, Oliver, was listening to the real me. That was my spirit that enlightened you. Don't take credit for every positive impression. Understand that it's a gift that is external rather than inherent. Now in verse 16, he's going to continue to help Oliver understand this. Yea, I tell thee that thou mayest know that there is none else save God that knowest thy thoughts and the intents of thy heart. And I'm speaking through an external source here to make it even more obvious that it's not you. Now I'm speaking through Joseph. Or in our case, sometimes it's I'm speaking through your patriarch. 
or through, through a priesthood blessing, or through a prophet in general conference, through scripture, something that comes from obviously outside you, to help you start to learn about the still small voice within that is still coming from an outside source, God. Well here, Joseph is going to tell you, in fact he's already telling you things that you haven't told him. He's speaking beyond his mortal understanding to remind you of times that you received beyond your mortal understanding. It's God that knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. It's God that knows that you inquired of me and that I already enlightened you. Joseph didn't know that. Well, now he does. But more importantly, now you do. You know that that was coming from me and not from you. See, now we have an external additional witness. Verse 17, I tell you these things as a witness unto thee, that the words of the work which thou hast been writing are true. Remember, that was Martin Harris's challenge. He's acting as scribe. He's writing the words that Joseph is dictating to him. Still not completely sure. Ah, is, is this true? I mean, I've, I've done all kinds of homework. Charles Anthon, 116 pages, all these things. But I just, I still don't know. Of course, Martin, you're never going to know in here, the heart, if all you're ever doing is homework up here in the head. Now, Oliver's challenge is different. He's been having the heart kinds of experiences. He just needs to trust in them. He needs to know where they're coming from. You're closer to this than you realize. You have a stronger testimony than you know. So here's this additional witness. I'm revealing your thoughts and the intents of your heart. I'm echoing on the outside what you've already received on the inside. Verse 18, therefore. In other words, because you know, and I know that you know, be diligent. Stand by my servant Joseph faithfully in whatsoever difficult circumstances he may be for the word's sake. Sounds a lot like his words to Martin Harris, too. You've got to come to know these things, not just for your sake, you'll fall without faith and without a testimony, but for Joseph's sake. He needs some backup. The law of witnesses isn't just to convince the jury, it's to protect the witnesses. And so, Oliver, you know these things. I'm giving you internal witness. I'm giving you external evidence. So as a result of that, please be diligent. There's nothing holding you back. You know. And now you know you know. So move forward and stand by Joseph. Be faithful. Give him the backup that you know he needs and that you now know he deserves. Stand by him. Now in verse 19, neither of you is perfect. So admonish him in his faults and also receive admonition of him. I love that it goes in both directions. Honestly, when both parties are willing to give and receive feedback. Amazing things happen for both. It reminds me of those companionship inventories in the mission field where you just tried to be as, as objective as you could, tried to be as gentle as possible, but to let people know their strengths and their weaknesses, their, their blind spots, places that they could improve, but to be equally open to your own blind spots. What, what am I missing? Lord, is it I? I mean, you're both going to be facing difficult circumstances for the word's sake. The last thing you need is to give other people more ammunition, to give them justification for their disbelief or opposition. So you've got to get better, Oliver. You've got to get better, Joseph. Members of the church, if we're open to admonition, 
And if we can do it gently enough in offering, remember what we saw in that previous verse, to help people come to know the error of their ways, but to do it in a loving enough way that they'll actually want to change as a result, instead of just clench it tighter because we're trying to yank it away from them. He goes on in verse 19 with some attributes that we'll need in order for that to occur. Be patient, be sober, be temperate. Have patience, faith, hope, and charity. You see how we're supposed to do the beginning of verse 19? With all the Christ-like attributes at the end of 19. Admonish and receive admonition in patience. Do it soberly. I'm not trying to make fun of you. I'm not trying to drag you down. I'm not trying to shame you into compliance. I'm trying to be as serious, sober as I can. I'm trying to be temperate. Remember, that's Shiblon's word, to bridle all his passion so he can be filled with love. I'm not trying to thrash you in all of this. I'm temperately, patiently, soberly trying to help you improve because I know down deep that's what you want. I'll make it obvious because I'm, I'm open to that myself. I, I want to improve. Please be patient and sober and temperate with me too. But can we both lift each other in this? It's what Zion is for. And through it all, again, he says, have patience. That's the one that's doubled. I guess we're going to need a double portion of that. And also have faith and hope and charity. Have faith in Christ that they can change, that he'll help them. Have hope through Christ that they will. And through the entire process, have charity, the pure love of Christ. It's what will motivate them to want to change. And it's what will reassure you all along the way to have the patience that they actually will change. And again, it goes in both directions all along the way. Now, verse 20, behold, thou art Oliver. Remind you of section three, behold, thou art Joseph. God knows us by name. He knows each of these servants. I have spoken unto thee because of thy desires. There's that word again. We keep seeing it. Therefore, Treasure up these words in thy heart. Be faithful and diligent in keeping the commandments of God, and I will encircle thee in the arms of my love. Talk about perfectly modeling what he just encouraged Joseph and Oliver to do back in verse 19. You want to improve each other? Well, let me show you how I can improve you. I know who you are. I know where you're coming from. I know your desires, and I want to help you reach them. So treasure up these words. Put them in a place where you'll remember and can draw upon them throughout the rest of your life. Treasure them up. Be faithful. Be diligent. Keep the commandments. And what's motivating you to do it? Charity. I will encircle thee in the arms of my love. And if thou art Oliver in 20, then 21 begins, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is not just the voice in your head, Oliver. This is me speaking. I am the same that came unto mine own, and mine own received me not. I am the light which shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Oliver, you're not the first person to wonder if I'm really speaking to you. Neither was Martin a chapter before. I'm used to this. I've shined in darkness, and it doesn't get it. I've come to my own, and they don't receive. Please don't be among that number, Oliver. My arms are outstretched. Come running. I'm ready to encircle you. 
Verse 22, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if you desire a further witness, and sometimes that's what we're really after. We say, I want to know. What we're really after is, I want to know again. Or, I want to know that I know. When section 5 begins and, and Martin is desiring a witness, he already knew. He'd had so many confirmations and so many external evidences. If we can be more honest with ourselves, it's not a witness we're after. It's a further witness. Not confirmation, but a reconfirmation. Please help me know again what I once knew. That's why I love talking about the three shelves. Remember Sister Camilla Kimball talked about that shelf of questions that we have that just don't seem to get answered? That's shelf number three in the ninth article of faith. Things that are yet to be revealed. But what's shelf number two? Things that God does now reveal. And what's shelf number one? We believe all that God has revealed. Well, do you hold on to that? Have you dusted off shelf number one recently? Have you inventoried your spiritual experiences? So that you know all the times that God has given you a witness in the past. Then remember it. Because if you have a well-stocked and well-inventoried and well-dusted shelf number one, then it makes you so excited for shelf number two. Because there's things happening there. I have evidence from the past, so of course God's going to keep revealing to me things in the present. And if I have a, a very active shelf number two, then shelf number three never collapses under its own weight. It never it overwhelms me with, with doubt. Instead, oh, I'm so excited for things that God has yet to reveal to me. I'm going to make room for it because I've been having some amazing experiences on shelf two. Let me just move those down to shelf one, Revelation past. And now I have room for Revelation future to become Revelation present. That's how it works. But it all begins with understanding what's on shelf number one. Remember, remember is a word that keeps coming up in Scripture. Oliver, you want a further witness? You want something from three to come down to two? Then please be honest with what I've already put on shelf number one. It was trusting in the original witness that got Joseph Smith through his three years of heavenly silence between the first vision and the coming of Moroni. It's trusting in original impressions that got Mother Teresa through decades of a dark night of the soul. It's what makes faithful endurers out of occasional doubters. It's what gets you through the difficult times in your mission or your membership or your marriage through your life. It's that transition stage from creation to fall to atonement. And it's what carries us through the fall stage, holding on to the memories of Eden that motivate us to look forward to the ultimate elevation of the atonement. Hold on to what you already know. It will get you through whatever stage of things you don't. But to those who desire a further witness, what's the instruction? Cast your mind upon the night that you cried unto me in your heart, that you might know concerning the truth of these things. That's what he was hinting at back in verse 15. Thou knowest that thou hast inquired of me. I enlightened your mind. I already told you. You want a further witness of it? Then relive the original experience. Cast your mind back upon that night. Put yourself back in that circumstance and relive it. Allow that memory to rekindle the flame. 
No wonder we're constantly told to remember. And that word itself, I love. Remember, re is the prefix to do something again. And remember has always confused me. I, I, to remember means to member it again. I gotta re, I gotta member again. Well, member is actually a verb. It's more commonly used in the word dismember. Oh, yikes. To dismember means to, to cut something up, right? Paul talked about us being members of the body of Christ. Each body part is a member. And so to dismember is to cut off body parts, which means to remember. I know it sounds kind of Frankensteinish, but to bring all those disparate parts back together again and infuse them with life. To remember the experience you've had in the past. Go reread some old missionary journals. Reread your patriarchal blessing. Go sing some primary songs that you knew were your favorite way back when. Mentally return to the waters of Mormon, the place where you came to know the goodness of Jesus. Dust off shelf number one. Take a trip down spiritual memory lane. Isn't that what recollection means? To recollect all of those spiritual souvenirs from a lifetime of God trying to reach down to you. I promise, if you will have eyes to see, you'll see his hand throughout your history. Cast your mind. You almost picture this fisherman just throwing out the line. Maybe you have to cast far, far back in your history. But there's something there for the hook to sink into. Verse 23, the Lord then reminds him of the specifics of that earlier experience. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have then from God? Again, there's that clarification. It was from me. That peace that you felt in your mind, that was a divine witness. That was being enlightened by the spirit of truth. You were the one listening then, Oliver not the one talking. I'm the one talking now. That's obvious. Joseph Smith is saying this to you. But I was the one talking then too, even when it was less obvious to you. And believe me, Oliver, witnesses from God outrank any other kind of witness. If you're not sure, go ask your buddy Martin Harris, because he got witnesses, quote unquote, from the family and from Searstone switching and from Charles Anthon and from the 116 pages, all kinds. But they were all head-based witnesses. And the greatest witness you can have is heart-based, the kind that comes from God. Now, verse 24, now behold, you have received a witness multiple times. For if I have told you things which no man knoweth, have you not received a witness? Because here's Joseph revealing things that only you and I know. Some of us have had those experiences. When a patriarchal blessing tells you things that you know the patriarch does not know about yourself. Or a priesthood blessing comes years later and repeats language or ideas that were in your patriarchal blessing from before. I remember being set apart as a missionary. And I had one fear that I didn't mention to anybody because I thought it was kind of an embarrassing lame one. I was honestly afraid that I'd be too tired to work. I have a very low idol. Ask my wife. I can lie down in bed and I'm usually out before I hit the pillow. I'm just out. And I just really worried that as a missionary, I, I wanted to serve with all my heart, my mind, and strength, but I worried I wouldn't have much. That I'd just be, I'd, I'd be exhausted too much. 
since then I found out I have sleep apnea that might be part of the problem but but I just wanted energy but I didn't say it to anybody but when my state president laid his hands upon my head and set me apart as a missionary among other blessings he said I bless you with energy and I just remember at the time knowing God knew my concern and he told me something that the two of us knew but the middleman did not and that blessing was fulfilled throughout my mission even on P days when I could take a nap I'd, I'd be lied there and I couldn't sleep I'm like no not now I don't need the energy now <laughs> but the Lord carried me through that when the Lord tells you things that only the two of you know there's another evidence that he's been at work now so far God has been speaking to Oliver of one gift the gift of revelation he now mentions another verse 25 I grant unto you a gift if you desire of me again desire and gifts go together ask John and Peter and so on the desire to translate even as my servant Joseph verily verily I say unto you that there are records which contain much of my gospel which have been kept back because of the wickedness of the people they haven't been using what they've already been given so of course they're not ready to receive more is this the Book of Mormon? Definitely. Are there yet other records? Yeah, the end of 2nd Nephi describes that, the record of the lost tribes. Anytime God speaks to his children, he asks them to write. And so I'm looking forward to additional books of scripture. And I imagine they'll need to be translated by those with gifts to do so. Now in 27, now I command you that if you have good desires, for example, a desire to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, then shall you assist in bringing to light with your gift those parts of my scriptures which have been hidden because of iniquity. Remember he said that earlier. You use your gift to inquire and gain knowledge, then share that knowledge with others, there's faith, and then convince them of the error of their ways, there's repentance. It actually reminds me beautifully of that verse in Alma chapter 26. Remember Ammon is giving his missionary homecoming address, and he says this, verse 22, Yea, he that repenteth and exerciseth faith, that's, those have to come first, and bringeth forth good works, you're using your gifts to the, for the benefit of others, and prayeth continually without ceasing. You're asking God to be a part of this process. If you'll do that, faith, repentance, service, prayer. Unto such it is given to know the mysteries of God. That's that first step. Yea, unto such it shall be given to reveal things which never have been revealed. That's the second step. You've learned it for yourself, and now you're able to reveal it to others. In the process, third step, it shall be given unto such to bring thousands of souls to repentance. I love that verse. It's become not just a favorite passage, but a favorite goal. That if I can have faith and repent and want to serve other people and pray for these gifts then God will reveal to me truths that I've never seen before. I'll see insight in Scripture that are completely new to me, and I'll be able to reveal them to others. That, to me, is what makes teaching powerful. That you've had eye-opening moments, light bulb experiences, and you share them with others, and their light bulb comes on in ways that it never has before. And in the process, they and you simply want to come unto Jesus that you want to be better, that you want to repent of your sins. That's what bringing thousands of souls unto repentance looks like. You having spiritual experiences and facilitating in others spiritual experiences of their own. I pray that that is happening as we speak. And if it is, 
It's because God is at work with his gifts, trying to bring hidden things to light and lost children home through his word. Verse 28, he continues, Now behold, I give unto you, Oliver, and also unto my servant Joseph, the keys of this gift. These two, Oliver and Joseph, would be together through so many things. Restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood, Melchizedek Priesthood, the keys of the kingdom in, in the Kirtland Temple in 1836. Well, you can be partners in revelation. You can be partners in translation. And partners are needed so that you can both testify of the reality of these things. The keys of this gift will bring to light this ministry. And in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So the law of witnesses, even in spiritual gifts. Verse 29, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if they reject my words and this part of my gospel and ministry, blessed are ye, for they can do no more unto you than unto me. He's foreshadowed that verse in several places. If they reject my words, well, they've done it before. I came unto my own, they received me not. I was light that shined in darkness, and the darkness didn't understand it. But if they do that, if they reject my words and this part of my gospel, I love that he describes, and this is Book of Mormon coming forth, but he still describes it as part. Yes, it contains the fullness of my gospel, but that book itself is only part of my gospel, only part of my ministry. There are so many other ways I am trying to reach my children. So if someone that you love or are trying to teach the gospel to rejects a part of your message, don't reject them fully. Because so much of what they live and what they understand and what they accept are other parts of the gospel and the ministry of Christ. This doesn't have to be all or nothing on the way to accepting a fullness. If they reject part, what parts are they open to? Then build upon those parts. Emphasize those parts. Acknowledge that, they've, that they're acting upon them. That just might open their heart to accept some additional parts specifically those that the Lord is referring to here. And then the end of that verse, they can't do anything more to you than they did unto me. Remember what the Lord said to Joseph back in section 5? Oh, I'll give you eternal life even if you are slain. Huh? Well, here again, hey, no matter how bad it gets, they can't do anything worse to you than what they did to me. And you can picture Joseph or Oliver going, what? they killed you. Yeah, and it wasn't that bad. I, I got over it. Resurrection is real. So Joseph, if they, if they do to you what they did to me, so be it. This is another scriptural step towards Carthage, like we saw last week. Verse 30, he then says, Even if they do unto you, even as they have done unto me, blessed are ye, for you shall dwell with me in glory. Keep your eye on that. On the other hand, verse 31, If they reject not my words, which shall be established by the testimony which shall be given. Blessed are they, and then shall ye have joy in the fruit of your labors. See, he treats actions and reactions differently. Joseph, even if they kill you, you will receive glory. Your actions aren't dependent upon their reactions. But on the other hand, if their reactions are such that they accept your message, oh, then there will be joy in both directions. How great shall be your joy with them, as we'll see in a later section. Verse 32 then says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, as I said unto my disciples, including Peter and John, 
where two or three are gathered together in my name as touching one thing, behold, there will I be in the midst of them. Even so am I in the midst of you, you Joseph, you Oliver, together working on this translation. The two of you developing the gifts of revelation, the two learning and serving together. If you'll do that, this unity, the two of you together, that's Zion, one heart, one mind. This focus, touching one thing, I'll be with you. The two of you will become the three of us. Oh, go ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The three of them would become the four of us. I want to be a part of this. These are gifts, after all, not inherent traits. Verse 33 through 37, he then finishes this revelation on such a personal note. I, I love the way he ends this. Fear not to do good, my sons. For whatsoever ye sow, that shall ye also reap. Therefore, if ye sow good, ye shall also reap good for your reward. We've been talking about thrusting in your sickle with your might. Well, yes, the field is white already. It's time for harvest, but there's still time to plant. So plant. Do all the good you can. Don't be afraid of that. That's an ironic kind of fear. Fearing to do good? Not wanting to be known that you're actually trying to do what's right? Elder Maxwell once described a reverse hypocrisy. Most of the time in hypocrisy, we want to look better than we really are. Well, there's a reverse kind where we want to seem less committed than we actually are. We want to pretend that we don't really know when we have had plenty of original witnesses. What is it that makes us fall to that kind of hypocrisy? Fear. I don't want to be a goody-goody. I don't want to be seen as, as too committed. Well, fear not to do good. You are my sons. You're part of the family business. This is what we do. So plant goodness and reap it as a reward. Verse 34, therefore fear not, little flock. You've gone from sower to seed, from shepherd to sheep. Now here's the Lord as the good shepherd. Fear not, little flock. Do good. Let earth and hell combine against you, for if ye are built upon my rock, they cannot prevail. Whether it's earth, man-made opposition, the philosophies of man, or hell, the devil himself, whatever that opposition is coming from, do good in the face of it. Let those things combine against you. If you're built upon my rock, and that rock is revelation, which is what you're learning, that rock is, is truth, which is what you're translating. That rock is me, and I'm speaking to you. Build upon that rock. Earth and hell cannot prevail, no matter how little the flock might be. No matter how weak these little lambs, you have the good shepherd. So trust in him. Do good. Verse 35, Behold, I do not condemn you, Go your ways and sin no more. Perform with soberness the work which I have commanded you. See how he's admonishing them in their faults, but doing it patiently, soberly, temperately, with faith, hope, and charity, patience throughout the entire thing. I don't condemn you. There's his mercy. Go your ways and sin no more. There's his justice. So similar to what he said to the woman taken in adultery. I don't condemn you, but don't keep sinning. Joseph, here's another set of contraries that are being proven. 
You've got to navigate life between my justice and my mercy, taking full faith in both. Perform with soberness the work I've given. And then he concludes, look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. Now that verse stands alone. It's short enough to be memorized and it's worth memorizing. I, but reverse the order for a moment and understand what he's doing here. At the end, he says not to doubt and not to fear. Well, easier said than done. But he's already told us how to live that commandment. And I think it is one not to doubt, not to fear. How do we overcome our doubts and our fears? By looking unto him in every thought. When doubts descend or fears arise, look to Jesus. Take all of those thoughts hostage and present them to him so that he can respond to them with his divine reassurance. And through it all, when he says to look unto me, what are we supposed to look at? He answers it in 37. Behold, there's another sight verb. Look unto me in 36, behold in 37. And what are we to behold? The wounds which pierced my side and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. That's what we're supposed to be looking at in every thought, especially the ones that are clouded by doubts or fears. When those things arise in you, look to Jesus and see in him the marks of his condescension, the scars of his agony. See in him one who is willing to descend below all things to lift us out of doubt and fear. Handle me and see, he says to his fearful apostles. I'm alive. I have conquered death and hell and I've done it for you. So what is there to fear? You see how he can say to Joseph so almost nonchalantly, they can't do anything to you worse than what they did to me. Look at my hands. They bear the marks of their opposition, but these are the hands that are still extended to encircle you in the arms of my love. There is nothing to fear and there's certainly nothing to doubt. When the Lord of light and life is standing before you. If there were ever anything worth casting your mind back on, it's times that you have known the love of God, the reality of the atonement, the truth of his grace. When sin and guilt has been swept away and you have sensed those arms of mercy, if we will do that, looking to him, in every thought, then the end of verse 37 should come so naturally. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Amen. To inherit it, he just called them my sons. Grow up in me, receive all I am trying to offer, accept the gifts that I've so generously given you. Now, receiving those gifts is exactly what Joseph and Oliver are trying to do. But as you turn from section 6 to section 8, you'll sense that Oliver tried and didn't quite succeed. 
in using the gift that he'd been promised, namely the gift of translation. Multiple gifts, right? First was revelation. He's been good at that. Receiving the gift or acting on the gift of translation would come harder for him. And so you see in section 8, verse 1, Oliver Cowdery, verily, verily, I say unto you, that assuredly as the Lord liveth, who is your God and your Redeemer, so this is oath language, as the Lord liveth, he's your God, so follow him. He's your Redeemer, so trust that he can make up for your mistakes. Even so surely shall you receive a knowledge of whatsoever things you shall ask. But here's how you have to ask. In faith, with an honest heart, believing that you shall receive a knowledge. Now he's speaking of a specific instance here. He was talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon. So he says, concerning the engravings of old records, which are ancient, which contain those parts of my scripture, of which has been spoken by the manifestation of my spirit. So that first verse really does point them back to the, what they've been learning in section 6. But the overarching principle is true. You were unable to translate the Book of Mormon, Oliver. You tried and failed. And that's okay. The principle still applies. I swear it on my own life, as the Lord liveth. I'm your God. I'm your Redeemer. I, I haven't fallen down on this. I'm still God. I, I'm okay with that you fell down. I'm your Redeemer. But the promise still stands. You can and will receive a knowledge of whatever you ask for. Just make sure you're asking in the right way. This is like Moroni's promise. Are you asking with a sincere heart, with faith in Christ, with real intent? Or in this case, are you asking in faith, with an honest heart, and do you believe that that knowledge can come? Now those may have been some of the weak points. Some of the things, as, as Oliver's trying to self-diagnose perhaps, why, could, why didn't it work? Why couldn't I act into that gift that I'd been promised? Verse 2 and 3, then the Lord explains a little bit more about revelation and how it works. This is a key passage. Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. There's that epistemological contrary that we talked about at the beginning of class today. It is both Athens and Jerusalem. Okay, It is both reason and revelation. It is both by study and also by faith. I want to speak to both. You'll have thoughts and impressions. You'll also have feelings that accompany them. It's like Joseph's experience with James 1.5. That's what made it such a revelatory experience with that scripture. When he read it, remember Joseph Smith history? And he says, never had any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man than that did at that time to mine. I reflected upon it again and again. So heart and mind are acting in tandem. Or fast forward and see when Joseph Smith, near the end of his life, is talking about work for the dead. And why spend so much time discussing that? The way he puts it in section 128, that was the subject that seemed to occupy my mind and press itself upon my feelings the strongest. Do you catch both body parts there as well? When something, you just can't stop thinking about it. It occupies your mind, but also presses itself upon your feelings. You kind of have to self-evaluate here and realize, am I more of a head or more of a heart? Am I the scarecrow or the tin man? Okay. Uh, sometimes those get gendered, male and female, rational and emotional. Both are absolutely essential. Neither the man without the woman or the woman without the man. The genders are one of the ultimate contraries to be proven. But also in terms of rationality and spirituality, both need to come together in these things.
He then gives an interesting example for when it was done well. He could have used any. That's how revelation works. But in verse 3, what's the specific instance he invokes? Now behold, this is the spirit of revelation. So it's, that's how he defines it, mind and heart. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Wait, 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 what? It always seemed, whether it was Charlton Heston in the original Ten Commandments or Val Kilmer in The Prince of Egypt, there's been lots of remakes of this story. There always seemed to be some kind of external voice booming down in this deep bass, you know, you shall do my wonders, or just, again, some external experience, but it seemed like more of an audible voice, God commanding Moses to part the Red Sea. And yet here, and I would take this on good evidence since God was there to remember it, how does he describe how it happened? Oh, spirit of revelation. How did Moses know to part the Red Sea? A thought came to his mind and a feeling came to his heart. Wait, really? I would have assumed it was so much more dramatic. I mean, that's the way Hollywood always presents it. Uh, yeah, Hollywood. What do they know about the things of God? But how did I lead Moses across the Red Sea? I planted a thought and I fanned a feeling until he with faith could move forward and part the waters. There's a fascinating verse in Moses chapter 1 where the Lord says this to Moses, Thou shalt be made stronger than many waters, for they shall obey thy command as if thou wert God. Now, I don't exactly know how much time has passed between that experience and Moses standing there at the Red Sea. Remember, in the Exodus account, he's just going to leave it all to God, right? The people are all freaked out. They've got sand on one side and surf on the other, and the soldiers are coming in. It's like, what am I, what am I supposed to do? And Moses just says, well, stand still and see the salvation of God. And the Lord says to, to him, in some way, impression, mind, and heart, evidently, what do you mean, stand still? No, move forward. And you picture Moses going, wait, wait, what? Move forward where? I've got ocean right here. Yeah, move forward. We're going to drown. No, have faith, move forward. Now again, according to section 8, none of this is audible. This isn't God and Moses having this wrestle verbally. This is all happening in Moses' mind and heart. He, he, he thinks he's supposed to do one thing. And so he moves forward with it and tells the people to calm down, be quiet, stand still, see the salvation of God. And then, again, mind and heart at work, you wonder if some, there's some uneasy feeling with that, going, was that the right thing to say? Are we really supposed to just stand here? I don't know. Well, what's the other option? The, the, the internal monologue would be fascinating here. And then Moses is like, ah, but what about... And then I just wonder if the spirit of revelation comes upon him by... Remember what Jesus said about the Holy Ghost. One of his jobs is to bring all things to our remembrance that I have said unto you. So you wonder if in that moment the Spirit kind of whispers, Moses, remember what the Lord said? I will give you power over the waters. You can command them and they will listen to you as if you were God. But then Moses, you know, the mind keeps racing. Well, okay, um, that, that did happen with the Nile, turned to blood. Um, is that, I thought that was it. Is, is there something I can do here? I, should I part the, <laughs> part the waters? Yeah, right. Like I could, what? and then a feeling comes. 
Something's happening in his mind, thoughts, and feelings of the heart are accompanying it. Can you imagine just that thought popping into his head, the Spirit reminding him of that promise from Moses chapter 1? Could I do this? No, it's insane. No, I feel, and the more I think, the stronger I feel, that's exactly what God wants me to do. Then here goes. And he begins. Now, according to Jewish tradition, and again, this is just Jewish tradition, Moses had to start walking into the water before it started to part. We know that happened with Joshua crossing the Jordan River. The priests had to get their feet wet before the miracle happened, right? Faith precedes the miracle. But according to this Jewish tradition, Moses was like up to his head before the water actually parted. Thoughts still occupying the mind. Feeling still pressing itself upon his heart. No, this is going to work. This has to happen. And the water parts. Talk about an incredible illustration of that spirit of revelation. We've all got to learn to develop these two body parts. Now, verse 4, the Lord says, Therefore, this is thy gift. Apply unto it, and blessed art thou. And there seems to be some tension here. This is thy gift. Oh, well, great. So I have it. It's mine now. What, what the other half? Apply unto it, and blessed art thou. Wait, apply unto it? Do you have to apply for a gift? Well, would you consider a scholarship a gift? Would you consider college admission or, or a job a gift? In many ways it is, because it's not completely up to you. You had to do something. You had to apply for it. But they had to do something too. They had to decide to give it to you. In my own patriarchal blessing, and I won't get specific here, but as it describes some of the gifts that God had promised me, it then says, these are your gifts, comma. I really wish it had been a period there. These are your gifts. Awesome. Or an exclamation point. Yay! This is the stuff that God has promised me, and, and that's who I am, and it's the things I'm going to be able to do in my life. Fantastic. But it's a comma. These are your gifts, comma, and you must claim them. And then the period comes. Oh, man, did you have to add that second phrase? Apply unto it? Claim them? Ever since I received that blessing, and that phrase has haunted me, I kind of picture this, it's almost like a lost and found, uh, or we could call it a given and not yet accepted, where here's all these spiritual gifts that God has in inventory, and we're supposed to find our way to the counter and identify ourselves. Thou art Martin. Thou art Oliver. Thou art Joseph. Well, I am Jared. And, and God said that this gift was reserved for me. He said I could come here and pick it up. And that if I was diligent and kept the commandments, if I approached him in faith and hope and charity, if I always remembered what the gift was for others and who it was from, God, then, then he would give it to me that I could claim it, that I could apply unto it, that I could exercise this gift and get better at using it. And it's important that we do all of that because it's by improving upon that gift, by developing it, that the real blessings come. Not in simply having it, but in using it. Because that way it blesses others and comes back to bless ourselves. Blessed art thou, he said, for it shall deliver you out of the hands of your enemies. When, if it were not so, they would slay you and bring your soul to destruction. 
This is so similar to what he said to Martin back in chapter 5. Unless you use your gifts and gain a testimony, you'll be destroyed. Here, Oliver, same with you. Unless you develop this gift of revelation, trust in it, you're going to be destroyed as well. Your soul, at least. You cannot live life without the gift of revelation. So in 5 he repeats, remember these words. Keep my commandments. Remember, this is your gift. It's there waiting for you. I promise. It's got your name on it. It's like you got your half of the ticket and you show it at the counter and they look it up and like, oh yeah, the tickets match. This really is your luggage at the airport. It really is your car at the valet. This is your gift and God is giving it to you. Now, verse 1 through 5 describes the gift of revelation and the gift of translation, which is a part of it. I think we have to keep that in mind anytime we think about translation, of bringing to light these engravings of old records, of revealing the mysteries of God. Like we saw with, I cannot read a sealed book. This is translation based not on scholarship, but on discipleship. It's translation based on revelation, not on research. And the fruits of those two models are going to be very different. Just look at the book of Abraham. Okay? Two very different products based on who is doing the translation. And here we see the gift of translation almost as a subcategory of the gift of revelation. Now that's the first. That's 1 through 5. Now 6 through 12 is a different gift. I said there'd be multiple, right? This one's an interesting one. It's similar to the gift that Joseph had in terms of seership and gifts that he associated in his youth with a seer stone were in reality intended for higher purposes with a Urim and Thummim. There's some similarity there. But do you understand that to purify your motives and your means? Similar here. Like I said in our discussion of seer stones and Urim Thummim, this was a time period in American history where there was still this kind of transition towards the Enlightenment. That there was still this tug of war going on between the, the purely natural and the supernatural between science and religion, between Athens and Jerusalem, take your pick. And just like some people turn to stones to try to find things they couldn't find otherwise, other people turn to rods. And so they would use divining rods. It was called dousing, where you would just try to find... Some people, honestly, there's records of people doing it even through the 20th century, where people are trying to use whatever means imaginable to access information they cannot find on their own. And just as there is historical evidence that Joseph at times used seer stones, there is evidence that Oliver Cowdery earlier in life had also used divining rods. And we're going to see that in section 8. Now in the original language of the Revelation, it was much more clear. If you see in verse 6, for example, now this is not all thy gift, for you have another gift, which is the gift of Aaron. Behold, it has told you many things. So there it's called the gift of Aaron. In verse 7 it's called the gift of Aaron as well. In the original manuscript version of this revelation, as it comes out of the mouth of Joseph and the pen of Oliver, it said the gift of working with the sprout. And then sprout is crossed out and rod is written in its place. And then the second instance it says this thing of nature, which is crossed out and rod is inserted in its place. And then eventually even rod was changed to gift of Aaron. Remember, the Lord works line upon line and precept upon precept. He speaks unto man according to their language so that they can come to an understanding. 
Well, both language and understanding can change. There's semantic shifts, as well as shifts of understanding exactly what's taking place. So originally, for both Joseph and Oliver, both of whom shared a deep belief in the supernatural, the miraculous, the divine, Joseph with seer stones, Oliver with divining rods, originally that this gift of working with the sprout, just this kind of this bud of a tree, well, sprout can be confusing. As we're preparing the, the Doctrine and Covenants for its publication in 1835, well, let's correct that so it's more understandable for people. So that is the gift of working with the rod. This thing of nature, what is that? That's the rod. Well, again, that's the first step forward. Okay, that's, that, I think that'll be a little bit more clear for people. Uh, but even that, is that still confusing? And here's what's fascinating to me. Again, there are biblical precedents for these things, and in some ways that precedent actually helps you see what the actual intent was. So for Joseph, is this a seer stone? No, what's it? Oh, this is Urim and Thummim. The divining rod? Oh no, this... Where do I know of rods in the Old Testament? Aaron. This is like Aaron's rod. This is like the gift of Aaron. So what you thought was one thing on this lower level, is actually something far more lofty than you realize. This gift was not meant for personal aggrandizement or finding buried treasure or water sources or mineral deposits or anything else. It was meant to give you something to sink your faith into, a crutch to help you balance on the leg of faith, training wheels to help you start rolling forward. We talked about this a couple lessons ago. The brother of Jared's 16 stones, our vials of consecrated oil, the laying on of hands, priestly robes. Even when you go to court, the judge dresses differently. It's meant to help us get mentally into a place where we can take serious things more seriously. It's interesting because today we often think the phrase spiritual but not religious is a modern phenomenon. But that's actually throughout history. Many people have been spiritual, even when they have denied the outer forms of religiosity. There's actually a fascinating book that chronicles the history of that concept throughout early American history. And the author says this, From the outset, Americans have had a persistent interest in religious ideas that fall well outside the parameters of Bible-centered theology. In order to meet their spiritual needs, they switched back and forth between magical and Christian beliefs without any sense of guilt or intellectual inconsistency. In fact, for many, it wasn't magical, it was miraculous, which tied into Christian beliefs so perfectly that no wonder that it didn't feel like they were switching back and forth between anything. Particularly when it came to stones and rods, when you go to biblical belief and you see the Urim and Thummim in the high priestly robes, and you see rods mentioned in terms of Jacob working with Laban's flocks, or Moses at the burning bush, or Moses and Aaron in Egypt and in the wilderness on their journey to the promised land. Or even this story from the Old Testament, when all of these tribes were kind of bickering over who should have priesthood authority. And what did Moses do? He gathers a rod from every tribe of Israel including Aaron's to represent the tribe of Levi. And he gathers those rods together, puts them into the tabernacle, and the next day when he brings them out, only one, the rod of Aaron, has budded and blossomed 
and brought forth almonds. Hello. It's like the Lord is trying to make it as obvious as he can't. You see, the, the concept here is how do I get God to communicate with me? That's what revelation is all about, right? So often we seek for signs, or we interpret dreams, or we read scripture, or we pray. But how do I know if God is really speaking to me? Remember, that was Oliver's challenge in section 6. Was that, was that me, or was that him? Sometimes it's even hard to decide what we ourselves personally want. And so is there any kind of, any evidence, anything more visible or external that I can, I don't know, project my own feelings upon, or best case scenario, through which God can project his realities upon. It's one of the reasons in both the Old and New Testament, they sometimes talk about casting lots. Now, pure science would say, oh, that's just luck. And in most cases, you're probably right. But can God work through those kinds of means? I actually love that story of Aaron's rod budding and blossoming. Because in my case, if I take all these oh, possible ideas, I could do this or maybe that, here's my options, I'm trying to do my homework, but I just want God to let me know which of all these things I should do. Well, if I take all these possibilities and present them to the Lord, again, gather these rods and bring them into the tabernacle, and then pray to God to help me see which one of these ideas starts to grow within me. Which one seems to occupy my mind and press itself upon my feelings the strongest? Which one starts to grow and bear fruit? Ah, that's the one the Lord wants me to pursue. We sometimes do it far more naturalistically when we kind of lay it out in a column of pros and cons, right? And we're doing our homework and trying to decide, should I take this job or that one? Should I move to this area or that? Should I major in this or major in that? And so we're doing our homework. But we are also praying to God to know, am I thinking this through correctly? Will you help me see in some way which direction I should go? Now, I have no idea how seer stones or Urim and Thummim worked for Joseph Smith or Aaron or anybody else. And I have no idea how, how divining rods would work for Oliver or how the staff of Aaron worked for him. And unfortunately, we so often get pulled into this thought of, of the occult and, and black magic and things like that. Where if you really think about it, evil is typically derivative rather than creative. What I mean by that is evil tends to counterfeit rather than create. Sometimes people will struggle with, why on earth would Moses make this brazen serpent? When, when isn't serpent a, a symbol of, of, of evil? The Garden of Eden, there's the devil as this serpent, right? But if you think about it, the serpent is actually a powerful metaphor for Jesus. Because what do serpents do? They shed their skin. It's as if they die, but they emerge out of death to a newness of life. I honestly wonder if Satan is using the serpent not in a creative kind of a way, but in a counterfeiting kind of way. Here I am offering knowledge, but I will really promise you everlasting life. Life can only come from Jesus Christ. So if we are concerned, and I, and I hear this and see this often in people, where it's like, oh, seer stones, that sounds like a, like a crystal ball. And the rod of Aaron, oh, that, that freaks me out. That sounds like a magic wand. Well, again, is that creative or derivative? Where did the ideas of crystal balls and magic wands come from? When you read about the Palantir in Lord of the Rings or those magic wands in Harry Potter, is this magic? Is it occult? 
Or is this derivative and counterfeit of means that God had used anciently, and even in the early history of the church, to try to help people focus their faith on something outside of themselves? The mortal mind craves things to hold on to. A Geiger counter to know that there's actual radiation here that I cannot see. An x-ray to be able to see past the surface at what is really inside this body. A metal detector, which is simply a divining rod of sorts that works based on different technology. There was actually a British science fiction writer, Arthur C. Clarke was his name, who was something of an expert when it came to futurism. What could things possibly look like? That's what sci-fi is all about, right? But he came up with what has since been labeled Clark's Three Laws. And the third one is the most famous. It says this, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If we were to show any of today's taken-for-granted technology to the ancients, they would either worship us as gods or, or burn us as witches. No, we've simply understood certain laws in the universe and can harness them to, hopefully, productive ends. When people lose sleep over translation issues in the Book of Mormon and worry about well, Joseph staring into a hat and covering it with his face to exclude the light, and I just think, well, when was the last time you tried to look at your smartphone in bright sun, and there you are trying to shield it so, that it, so you can actually see what's written? Or Urim and Thummim, have you seen those speakers that they make to look like rocks so they can be out in your garden or out by the pool and you can play music? Can you imagine some earlier aborigine coming and seeing that, wait, sound, you get sound out of this stone? How is this possible? Again, metal detectors, a rod that you are waving over the ground to try to find things that you couldn't see in any other way. I have no idea how any of those technologies work. Mechanical engineering makes a little bit of sense to me when this gear moves that thing. But electrical engineering is way over my head. Or computer engineering, the zeros and the ones, how all of that strung together can communicate through time and space. To my uneducated mind, it sure seems like magic. Well, if we mere mortals can do that, imagine the quote-unquote technology of God. Sufficiently advanced that to our primitive mind, it seems impossible. In some ways, it reminds me of those 3D printed pictures that used to be all the rage, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. You know the ones I'm talking about where you look at it and it just seems like a random array of dots all across a page. But they keep telling you, well, learn to see and a 3D image will, will just jump out of the, off the page. And you're like, what are you talking about? People either love those things or they hate them. And you probably know why. Some people can see, and some people just can't. But once you have the eyes to see, then what you doubted before, what you were totally skeptical about, like it was some emperor's new clothes kind of a thing, like, oh yeah, they say they're seeing something, but there's nothing there. They're trying to make you feel like an idiot putting your nose next to the page. No, there really is something there. And those with eyes to see can see. Now, in Oliver's case, I have no idea how this rod was supposed to help him understand these things. I am grateful that eventually they realized this is more than just some kind of dousing stick. This is more than a divining rod. This is the gift of Aaron. I love how the Lord can sanctify our gifts and help us see what they were really intended for. Oh, you thought that was to make you rich or famous? No, no, no. It was meant to prepare you to be of greater influence for good in the world. But how it worked, I don't know. How the Urim and Thummim worked, 
I don't know. How MRIs and CT scans work, I don't know. How my cell phone works, I don't know. But I use it every day because I know that it does work. And Oliver had the faith that it would work as well. As it says in verse 6, this gift of Aaron, behold, it has told you many things. Somehow it has worked for you in the past. But notice 7, behold, there is no other power save the power of God that can cause this gift of Aaron to be with you. So it's not the rod, it's not the stone, it's not the bread and water, it's not the consecrated oil, it's certainly not the mud and spit that Jesus is using to bring sight to the blind. It is the power of God. But he can use any of those earthly materials to try to help you center your faith and see that something is actually happening. I love the story of that man born blind. If you're blind, you can't see any of what Jesus is doing to you. But to feel something, to, to have some kind of outward sensation that something is, he's doing something to me. Is clay and spit mere placebo? Perhaps. But it's not convincing the blind he can see. It's simply convincing the blind that he who can give sight to the blind is at work in him. You are allowed to give priesthood blessings without consecrated oil. But that does help me center my faith in the atonement of Christ, since Gethsemane means olive press. To get a sense of what Jesus brought into the world as he was crushed under the weight of sin. I should be renewing my covenants with God at all times, in all places. But to see bread and to taste it, to take water and bring it in, does help me internalize the covenants that I am making. Judicial robes do tend to help us take judges more seriously. Wearing caps and gowns and moving a tassel does make it seem like something is happening at graduation. But in those instances of the miraculous, it is the power of God that is causing these gifts to be at work in you. So look to me in every thought. Verse 8, therefore doubt not, it is the gift of God. You shall hold it in your hands, against something tangible, something to, to rest your faith on, and do marvelous works. No power shall be able to take it away out of your hands, for it is the work of God. Verse 9, therefore, whatsoever you shall ask me to tell you by that means, that will I grant unto you, and ye shall have knowledge concerning it. What means has God used for you in the past? And can you ask God to continue to reveal truth to you through that means? For me, it's scripture. Sometimes it's music. Sometimes it's nature. Sometimes it's priesthood blessings. Sometimes it's seeing things anew in my patriarchal blessing I'd never noticed before. I'm grateful that the Lord has so many different means to reach us. So rely on those means. Ask that he may grant you knowledge. But recognize that those means are not the end. The end is God. That's the ultimate source of this knowledge. Then in verse 10, remember that without faith you can do nothing. Therefore ask in faith. Trifle not with these things. Do not ask for that which you ought not. You see, that is the main danger of physical objects. It makes it more likely that we'll confuse means and ends and start crediting the object instead of the actual original source. It's why skeptics love to make fun of the so-called magic underwear that Latter-day Saints wear. It's not the garment that protects us. It's God that does. 
but the garment reminds us of the covenants we've made to tap into that ultimate power source. Where should I place my faith in God? What should I be asking for? Things for others. Remember, that was the, the transition that Joseph made. This Syriac site was not to, to enrich myself or my family. It was to unfold the mysteries of God. So sanctify the source. Purify your motives. Center your faith in God. Don't trifle with these things. Joseph had to purify himself to find the real purpose behind his gifts. And Oliver, you need to do the same. We all do. I remember once driving home after a seminary lesson that just seemed to go so powerfully. I felt so connected with my students. And I remember driving home and all of a sudden it was one of those prayers that the Lord kind of takes control of. And he lets you know what you should be thanking him for. It's almost like mentally I returned to my high school years. I know that can be scary. But I actually loved high school. And I had friends in practically every clique there was. And I just felt connected almost everybody on campus. And it was interesting now as a seminary teacher surrounded by high school kids. It was like the Spirit was whispering to me as I thanked Heavenly Father, thank you for letting me be successful in sports so that I could relate to my students who are athletes. And thank you for giving me some musical talent so I could relate to my students that are drawn towards music. Thank you for blessing me intellectually so I could relate to the smart kids, but also for blessing me with a sense of humor so I could relate to the class clowns. It was a paradigm shift kind of experience for me. That all of a sudden I looked at my high school years and it was as if the Lord were saying, do you really think I blessed you during high school for yourself? You really think that was about you? No. I blessed you in high school to relate to everyone else out there because I knew you'd be in high school for a long, long time. That was never about you. Joseph, Oliver, do you have any idea why these gifts were given you? There are higher and holier purposes at work. This is so much bigger than digging for money or dousing for water. Oliver, it's living water I'm sending you forth to find. As the Lord concludes this revelation in verse 11, Ask that ye may know the mysteries of God and that you may translate and receive knowledge from all those ancient records which have been hid up that are sacred. According to your faith shall it be done unto you. See how verse 11 ties it back into verse 1. This revelation is coming full circle. Whatever these gifts might be, revelation, translation, even the preparatory gift of the gift of Aaron, it is meant to bring to light truth so people can learn of me and find their way home. In verse 12, Behold, it is I that have spoken it, and I am the same that spake unto you from the beginning. Amen. It's like back in section 6. Thou art Oliver. I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Please keep those straight through all of this. Now section 8 quickly turns to section 9, which again is Oliver still wrestling. Why, why did I fail? If these are my gifts, did I not apply unto them well enough? Did I not have enough faith, enough honesty, enough belief? Where did I fall short? And section 9 comes as an answer. 
I actually love this section because as I mentioned earlier, my wife and I had a hard time coming to know God's will concerning our marriage. Well, especially my wife did. Mine was easy. I was asking, is she worth marrying? That's a duh, yes. Hers was harder. Am I worth marrying? I can understand why it took so long. But section 9 was one of these revelations that I actually read during that period. And it came as such a, a personal message to me and to my wife. Ever since, this has become one of the places that I go to most often when answers don't seem to come. Or students that are wrestling with questions that they're not finding answers to. This is a revelation I often point them to. So keep an eye out for principles that apply when answers don't come. Section 9, verse 1. Behold, I say unto you, my son. Another beautiful reminder of who you are and whose you are. That because you did not translate according to that which you desired of me, and did commence again to write for my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., even so I would that you should continue until you have finished this record which I have entrusted unto him. It's like, it's okay, Oliver. You tried, you failed, but you did have an attempt, and now we do have two witnesses as to the process of translation. You can bear witness just how hard it is, that it does have to come from God. That this isn't just Joseph's will or work at play, that God has to reveal truth to us, and it's difficult to come by at times. So now, Oliver, shift back to your other role, your role as scribe, because honestly, you do that way better than Joseph ever would. Have you seen his handwriting? Have you seen his spelling? You're the school teacher. We need those gifts, believe me. So you maintain your role and Joseph will maintain his through the duration of this translation. And don't worry, there's other opportunities ahead. Verse two, then behold, other records have I that I will give unto you power that you may assist to translate. Oliver would also assist in the Joseph Smith translation, in the translation of the book of Abraham. In fact, and can we call this translation? I think we can, since translation is a subheading of revelation. Even preparing the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants for publication, Oliver Cowdery had his hand in that as well. So he did have his hand in bringing to light truth. And then again, counsel for him and counsel for us. When answers don't come, verse 3, be patient, my son, for it is wisdom in me, and it is not expedient that you should translate at this present time. So much wise counsel there. Patience, how many times have we seen that mentioned in these sections? Patience, wisdom, it's like that caveat that Moroni gives in Moroni's promise. And when ye shall receive these things, if it be wisdom in God that ye receive them. Is the time right for you? Are you in a preparation, as Alma 32 says? Are you ready for this? Is it wisdom? Is now the time to get this answer? Or will it mean more for you later? Remember, God's work and designs and purposes are never frustrated. He can get as much out of teaching opportunities by our steps forward as well as our steps back, by our successes as well as our failures. So right now, it is wisdom in me that you not translate. Your failure was wisdom in me just like your success can be. Verse 4, Behold, the work which you are called to do is to write for my servant Joseph. So there are still other things you should be doing in the meantime. Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed for a child for decades, I'm sure, but they didn't just sit and wait for the miracle. Zechariah went back to work. He went back to the temple. And in that process, the, the answer eventually came. So you still have work to do. Go do it. My wife and I didn't just sit there waiting for the answer to come. We kept dating. 
We kept doing our homework. We kept weighing pros and cons. Verse 5, Behold, it is because that you did not continue as you commenced when you began to translate that I have taken away this privilege from you. And privilege it is. Another great word for gift. A privilege. Now, this is interesting. I wish we knew more detail here. What was Oliver doing at the beginning of his attempt that he wasn't doing further on? If the Lord is after our endurance and our perseverance, if he's trying to build stamina, spiritually speaking, then no wonder he sometimes delays things to see if we will continue as we commenced. Remember that great definition of character. The ability to follow through with a decision after the emotion of making the decision has passed. You started great, Oliver. You just didn't continue. Verse 6, do not murmur, my son. So many times he repeats that, my son. You're still mine. I'm not giving up on you. But don't murmur. It is wisdom in me that I have dealt with you after this manner. You are going to learn more from this failure than you would have from success. That's a tough one to swallow sometimes. When answers aren't coming, when blessings aren't forthcoming, don't complain. Verse 7, Behold, you have not understood. Are there things about the process that we don't quite get yet, that we need to figure out? You haven't understood this. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. And it was never meant to be that easy. I know, I've said many times, Ask and ye shall receive, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. But read the fine print. And those aren't caveats so that I can have, have a loophole to get out of. Those are individualized instructions to get as much out of your asking as you and I can, namely your own spiritual growth. Ask in faith, real intent, sincere heart, honest heart, believing these things can take place. There's so much about you that I'm trying to work on between the ask and receive ends of the experience. I remember a life-changing letter that my dad sent to my wife and I when we were in the throes of, of indecision. And my wife was really struggling, why isn't God answering yet? And my dad sent her and me a letter just describing what it would be like to be waiting outside the office of God, ready to go in and ask Him a question. And he said, too often, we want to just stick our heads in, blurt out the question, get a quick answer, and then run off on our merry way. I got what I came for, and I'm out of here. I got other things to do. But if it's God in there, and you finally get access to the office, <laughs> if it were me, I would try to avoid asking my question for as long as I could, just so I could hang out with him. I remember my wife and I once being invited to go spend five minutes in President Hinckley's office. I had taught two sisters that were relatives of his, and they were going to go see him, and they very kindly allowed my wife and I to come for a little five-minute stint. Man, I wanted to stretch those five minutes so far beyond the 300 seconds that we got, but he's a busy man, and technically this was family time, and I'm just grateful I got to be there at all. But if I'd had the privilege of staying longer, extending the conversation, do you understand what it's like to be able to commune with God, to plead with Him for an answer to a question that is weighing upon our soul, but to understand that He's working on us even as He prepares us for the answer He'll eventually give? 
I've often joked with my institute students, so many of them young single adults preparing for marriage. I've said, if you are praying to God to know if she or he is the right one, don't be surprised if God tends to stall a little bit because he's had things on his list that he's wanted to reach out to you about for decades and he finally has your undivided attention. That's a new experience for him most likely. So again, if he, he's like, oh, I promise I'll get to your question. But now that we're actually talking, there's a few things I've been wanting to bring up over the years. Can, can we start with my list before we get to yours? I, I promise I'm not trying to stall for no reason. I have very good reason. It's wisdom in me. You see, you just thought it was punch the buttons and hit enter and out comes the answer. Now the wrestle is what I'm after because it's building muscles. It's developing faith. It's also developing work. And that's something you were missing, Oliver. You see verse 8, very famous passage. Instead of just asking me, you should have, here it is, you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. That's the part that Oliver was missing. You thought that all it was was heart work. Ask and it comes. Piece of cake. No, you need to lean a little bit more in Martin Harris's direction. Not all the way, believe me, but you've got some work to do. Martin was all about doing the head work, right? You, you go talk to him. But for you, Oliver, you've got to do more head work than you've been doing because all you've done is ask. You've got to study it out in your mind. You've got to come up with a preliminary translation in this case, or in our case, a preliminary answer, and then ask me if you're right. When my students are struggling in those circumstances, I've often said, picture you're in a math class and you've got this test and there's the question and the problem that you've been working on and you raise your hand and you bring the teacher over and say, did I get this one right? Now, if you wave them over and show them a blank page and say, hey, can you give me the answers here? Of course, they're not going to give them to you. This is school. You're supposed to be learning. At least show me an answer. Now, if you've done your homework and then asked, is this right? Then the teacher has three options. They can either look down and say, yes, that's correct. They can look and say, no, that isn't. Or they can look down and look back up at you and say, are you ready to hand in your exam? Now, Elder Richard G. Scott has said, when we ask God questions and seek confirmation of things, there seem to be three possible outcomes, either a yes or a no or a no answer. He said the yes is meant to give us confidence. Yes, oh, I'm ready to turn in my test. The no is to pull us back and keep us from making a mistake. That's when the teacher says, no, that's wrong. And you're like, I'm so glad you said that. I can go rework the question. The third one is when no answer comes. And that's the one the teacher says, hmm, are you ready to turn in your exam? Now that right there, that's the worst of the three, right? I'd much rather have the one or the, well, the one especially, but maybe even the two. But that silence, which is what we're grappling with here in section nine, is in some ways a gut check to force us to see, do I trust the homework that I've done? You see, the assumption is that I've done some. I did provide my answer. But when the Lord doesn't say anything and just says, are you ready to pass in your exam? Then we really have to think, did I do, did I do the right work? Did I do enough of it? Did I double check? Did I work my answer in reverse and, and check things? If I didn't, then now's the time to redo it. Now is the time to do a little more studying it out in my mind. And if I end up with the same answer a second time, 
I, what do I have? I have a little more confidence, right? Or if I come up with a different answer, then I know that one of them was wrong and I'm going to restart and redo the whole thing. Then maybe I come up with a new answer or the same answer. And now I flag the teacher back over. Is it okay? I, I, I double checked. Is it right? And now again, she might say yes. She might say no. She might simply say, are you ready to hand in the exam? Well, I'm actually readier than I was before because I double checked. I studied it out a little bit more. You see, I think it's wise advice when we have questions to work like an atheist and to pray like a saint. It's what I often encourage my students to do as they're wrestling with who should I marry? You see, because we're not atheists, we sometimes don't tend to work like one. Atheists do make decisions. They do get married. They do decide on a career. They do go to college. They don't pray about it because they don't think there's anybody on the other end of the line. So what do they do? They study it out in their minds. And when they've come up with something they're confident in, they move forward, not with faith in God, but with faith in their homework. And that's good because we're saints. Sometimes all we do is pray like saints without having done the homework to precede it. Remember, Martin only wanted to do homework. Now, Martin, ask me. I'll let you know. Section five. Oliver Cowdery only wanted to ask. He wasn't doing his homework. No, you've got to study it out. Section nine. In fact, as many students of mine over the years have asked when I tell them the story about seven months of proposing before my wife finally relented, they've often said, what took her so long? And I say, well, other than the obvious, part of the challenge was she just wanted God to make the decision for her. She had learned to be obedient by that point in life. And she was like, God, I'm scared to death of marriage. It's a huge decision. So you just tell me if it's right and I'll do it. You tell me who to marry and I'll do it. Even if it's him, I will, I'll soldier on. I, I will take up my cross. I'll, I'll marry Jared, but I just need you to tell me. And I've learned over the years that God refuses to be backed into a corner that way. No, this needs to be your choice. Remember agency. I'm kind of big on that. If you remember the war in heaven, oh, you don't. Well, read your scriptures. I'm big on agency. I will not remove it from you by forcing my will upon you, especially when it comes to marriage. There are going to be hard times ahead. And I don't want you shaking your fist heavenward saying, why did you force me into this relationship? It will be, no, you chose it. You desired it. And I knew that that desire would bring you joy. If you continued following my counsel, heeding my promptings, keeping my commandments. So yes, of course, move forward. My wife said that after seven months of my proposing and after a long time of dating, even before that, she finally got to a point where she wanted to marry me and her prayers changed. It's as if she had worked sufficiently as an atheist to be able to say to God, fine, if it were completely up to me, I'd marry the guy. I want to. And she said, as soon as she said that to God, here is my answer. Did I get it right? It was amazing how quickly the confirmation came. It's like, of course you're right. Marry him. Nobody else is going to move forward. You understand? Study it out and then ask, but you've got to do your homework first. Now the rest of verse eight and all of verse nine is really important here too. He lets us know how the confirmation will come. Now, what we need to understand here is this is one of many ways whereby confirmation can come. Don't limit yourself. Don't confine yourself just to this way. 
He says, if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings, but you shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Therefore, you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me. So that last phrase helps us see this is in the context of translation, which, by the way, should cure us of the thought that all translation was simply reading words off of the stone. That I call revelation by dictation. You're just reading it right off. It's, it's all God and hardly any of you. But this whole idea of you've got to study it out, you have to present an idea and then let the Spirit confirm through this burning in the bosom, Wow, that lets you know that Joseph was a lot more hands-on in the translation process. That, that the center of gravity wasn't all God and, well, you're just supposed to say it so somebody has, has something to write. It's, no, you're supposed to study and ponder and think. and how. It's what I call revelation by depiction. Revelation by dictation is just read the words. Revelation by depiction is more like here's the picture and you supply the thousand words. How would you put that into terms that can be written. That's hard. In my own experience, I have had a few, very few experiences with revelation by dictation, where here's exactly what needs to be said. Much more frequently, it is an impression. It is a depiction of something that I'm then supposed to translate into actual language. It's a lot harder. I feel Oliver's pain. I'm also amazed by Joseph's ability to do so. Okay, so it, literal context, it's writing things which are sacred. But bigger picture, how do I gain confirmation that what I've come up with, that my homework is right? In this case, the burning in the bosom. Now that's confused a lot of people. I remember my wife's best friend in college was, got married about the same time as we did, and she was pregnant shortly after my wife and I were pregnant with our first. And so my wife had already gone through pregnancy and childbirth when this good friend of hers was going through it for her. And at one point she asked my wife, did you ever get heartburn during your pregnancy? And my wife was like, oh yeah, all the time. Heartburn was the worst. And this friend was like, yeah, I, I've never had heartburn, but I just feel this, this like burning in my esophagus. It's not a heart issue, it's more esophagus. And my wife just kind of chuck, chuckled and said, that's heartburn. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, it had, sorry the name, but it has nothing to do with your heart. It is your esophagus. It's just, you know, stomach acids backing up and the, the baby's there and there's no room. And so, yeah, we all kind of deal with it. But it was just this idea of, am I understanding what you mean by a burning in the bosom? That, but that's very specific and it's not the only one. And so don't confine yourself just to a burning in the bosom. The last line says, you shall feel that it is right. And that's so much more broad and encompassing. So whether it's heart or esophagus, or on my mission, people would speak of calor frio, this hot cold, or these chills, or whatever it might be, is there a feeling there? And remember, he speaks to the mind and the heart. So beyond the feeling, in its absence, verse 9, this stupor of thought, the, this absence of such feelings, this point that you forget. Talk about the opposite of something that is on your mind incessantly and pressing on it on your feelings. It just kind of came and went without anything to kind of center you there. You put a rod into the tabernacle and it didn't blossom at all. And for any of you out there who might wonder, well, any of those fe feelings, are they just psychosomatic? 
Remember what Oliver learned back in section 6. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? I actually love that phrase. I think we overquote section 9 verse 8 and underquote section 6 verse 23. It just clicks. It just makes sense to me. And I'm at peace with it. If you're one who gets the burning in the bosom, be grateful for it. If you're one who gets the peace spoken to the mind, be grateful for it. Either way, you will feel that it is right. And those feelings and thoughts are coming from God, not just from you. I often realize that in my own case, because I know they're not coming from me. They're at an intensity that I can't just muster. It's not just confirmation bias, because sometimes it's telling me something I don't want to do. And it's certainly not self-induced, or I would be inducing all the time, because I love the feeling of the Holy Ghost. When I truly feel that mind being enlightened, and that feeling of truth coming to press itself upon me, in my case, it's just different than something I could muster for myself. There is an inner stillness and silence when I know the real me is the person listening. The person speaking is someone else. Now verse 10, back to Oliver. Now if you had known this, remember, you have not understood. Well, you're learning along the way. Here's some instruction based on your experience. If you had known this, you could have translated. It was your gift after all. Nevertheless, it is not expedient that you should translate now. That ties back in with verse 3. It's not expedient at this present time. Verse 11, Behold, it was expedient when you commenced, but you feared, and the time is past, and it is not expedient now. So part of that problem that he mentioned earlier about you did not continue as you commenced, what got in the way? His own fear. Fear can get in the way of that faith, and faith is required for these gifts to come to fruition. Now it's no longer expedient. Verse 12, For do you not behold that I have given unto my servant Joseph sufficient strength, whereby it is made up? And neither of you have I condemned. That is such a comforting promise. It can be made up for by someone else. If, to me, that's one of the ways that God compensates for our sins of omission. He gives someone else sufficient strength. He gives someone else sufficient prompting, and they actually act on it when I did not. And so the person I could have helped still gets helped. I'm just not part of that process. And what a tragedy for me and the blessing I could have been and the blessing I could have received. But in this case, it's okay. The translation is going to get done. If it's Joseph instead of you, that's okay. Neither of you have I condemned. Just like he said with Joseph and Martin about the last 116 pages. I love that Joseph and Martin have one failure, and Joseph and Oliver have a different one. And everybody's learning throughout it all. The work still gets accomplished, and God doesn't condemn any of them. It's okay, my sons. You're learning. You're growing up in God. He then concludes, Do this thing which I have commanded you, and you shall prosper, be faithful, and yield to no temptation. Whether that's the temptation to murmur, as was said earlier, the temptation to fear, the temptation to give up, to not continue, 
any of those temptations, temptation to just, I don't know, throw in the towel on the whole work or doubt that it's actually happening at all, avoid all of those temptations. Don't yield to any of them. Instead, verse 14, stand fast in the work wherewith I have called you. Whatever that work might be, translator, scribe, witness, disciple, just stand in it. And a hair of your head shall not be lost, and you shall be lifted up at the last day. Amen. The promise is still for you, Oliver, as it is for Martin, as it is for Joseph, as it is for any of us. God doesn't condemn. He exalts. He more than makes up for our mistakes. Whether it's sins of commission like Martin or sins of omission like Oliver, whether we're too much head or too much heart, the Lord is slowly bringing us into the celestial center. He's helping us prove these contraries. And we can learn from our mistakes instead of being condemned by them. That's what the atonement was for. And thankfully, Oliver did all of that. In fact, if you go back to Joseph Smith history, where we were a couple of weeks ago, at the end of the account, there's a beautiful end note by Oliver Cowdery himself. But he says this about the experience of being involved in the translation. And it would have been easy for him to be angry or to be bitter or to be, I don't know, judgmental or, or doubting as far as Joseph Smith was concerned. But thankfully, Oliver wasn't that way. Instead of dwelling upon his own failings or begrudging Joseph Smith for a superior gift, he says this, These were days never to be forgotten. To sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven awakened the utmost gratitude of this bosom. I love that he said that. He missed out on the burning of the bosom that section 9 talked about. It would have come if he'd studied it out a little harder in the translation. But what filled his bosom instead? Gratitude. Gratitude for the gifts of God that he gave others even when it was a gift that I couldn't fully share in myself. God be thanked for the gifts He gives to each of His children, including the ones that He withholds from you or me. If we spend our days developing those gifts, engaged in God's work, deepening our testimony, learning to receive revelation, if we spend our days in those great and marvelous works, then those will be days never to be forgotten.